If you have the same Bible as I have, it's on page 1295, 1 Peter chapter 3. We will read verses 1 through 8, focusing only on verse 8 as our text this evening. First Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 1. This is again the word of God to his people. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And our verse, our text. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we look at this verse today, we have come to the end of Peter's extended section, starting back in chapter 2, of relational instructions for the believers in Asia Minor. In verses 12 through 25 of chapter 2, and the first seven verses of chapter 3, Peter has commanded these believers to stand apart from those in the society around them. They were instructed in how to do this by way of humility and service to others. Having come to the end of this section, Peter wraps it all up with a simple concluding statement. Our verse, finally all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Having done all of the heavy lifting pointing out the ways each individual is, inter is to interact with others in different areas of life, Peter brings it all together, and he calls all of the Christians to now hold the same values in mind, in heart, and in Christian love. Looking at this verse today, we have what theologians and scholars call a chiasm. Thankfully, we don't have to worry about what this word means because it just means Peter wrote these five characteristics in a way that there are two similar ones at the front and another two similar ones, front and back. And then the second and the second from the last are also similar. And in the middle is the one he wants us to especially focus on. It's kind of like an arrow. It starts out wide and gets a little more narrow. And then the really important part is the sharp part on the top. This chiasm, what they call a chiasm, consists of five plural adjectives in the original language. 
As I'm sure many of the children could tell us, an adjective describes a person, a place, or a thing. In this case, they're describing the church, the people of the church. This chiasm begins and ends with related mindsets. He says unity of mind and a humble mind. In the middle, it looks at the emotions, says sympathy and a tender heart. And then it reaches the pinnacle in the middle with a call to brotherly, Christ-like love. Taking each portion of the chiasm, our three points this evening will be the following. The mindset of the believer, unified and humble. The emotions of the believer, sympathetic and compassionate. And finally, the love, which is to be a love like Christ's. Looking at our first point today, we examine the first and the fifth attribute that Peter lists. These two lay out the mindset that Peter wants the believers in Asia Minor to practice as their standard attitude. Peter calls for the believers to have unity of mind and a humble mind, really a beautiful Christ-like combination. They must show a mindset that is unified in its goal and purpose, and it must be humble, not proud or self-seeking. This unity of mind does not mean that Peter wants all of the Christians to agree on every single aspect of life. The body of believers is not supposed to be a group all saying the exact same things, wearing the exact same clothes, acting the exact same way. There's a place for variety in the Christian church, but the emphasis is that we are a body. Our core beliefs must be unified. Our doctrines and our theology must be the same. We, as a body, have to display a foundational unity, even if that means on the surface we appear to be a very different group of people. Even if we have different tasks and abilities, a body must have at its core a single focus. We can do different small things at the same time, like when you rub your head and or sorry, you pat your head and you rub a circle on your stomach. But we can't be moving in two different directions at the same time, or else you'll be torn apart. Think about when you throw a ball. What is your body doing? Well, your legs, one of them is pushing and the other one is pulling back. Your trunk is going to rotate one way, and then it's going to rotate the other way. Your shoulder is going to be rotating another way while your elbow and your wrist are flexing and your hand is holding tight onto a baseball. None of those body parts are really doing the same thing other than they're all moving. But they're all focused on one goal, throwing the ball to a target or to whoever you're playing catch with. So Peter uses plural pronouns to call all of the believers encouraging them as a body to pursue a single goal. And that goal is following the will of God, showing honor and love to people they have relationships with. Starting all the way back in verse 11 of chapter 2, Peter has called for the beloved to conduct themselves in a way that shows everyone who is a witness that their conduct is being used to win over unbelievers to Christ. When they see the Christian's life of service and good works, they cannot help but to see Christ in that. 
Peter even mentions in verse 15 of chapter 2, this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. To put it quite simply, and maybe a little too obviously, these two words sum up the entire section of exhortation that Peter gave from chapter 2, verse 11, all the way through chapter 3, verse 7. As believers in Christ, the Christians are called to be unified around the single goal of following the will of God. The will of God for their lives is spelled out from verse 16 of chapter 2 onward as humility in the face of persecution and hardships that may result from different authorities in their lives. So long as that ridicule and that persecution is leveled at them for following the will of God and bearing the name of Christ, Peter says, let it come and rejoice. As Christ told his apostles in John 15, 20, a servant is not greater than his master. They persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So in the face of hardships brought about by their position as Christians, the believers are told to stay humble, taking comfort in the fact that Christ suffered before them, and he did so that they may follow in his example. That's chapter 2, verse 21. Through difficulties in our lives, we are able to grow in our patience and our trust in God knowing that He is using these trials to cause us to rely more and more on Him and less and less on ourselves. We are called to humble ourselves before the sovereignty of God, knowing that in these hardships He is molding us and He is shaping us after the image of His Son, who also faced hardships on this earth. Like our faithful Savior, we don't encounter tough times and decide that we had better step up and take control to fix this situation. But instead, as he did, we continue to submit ourselves to the will of God, praying with our Savior, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. There, in the example of Christ, we see what our mindset is supposed to be. Not seeking our own comforts, our own desires, or our own advancement, but humbly seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Peter calls for the believers to be unified together in this humble pursuit of a lifestyle that is centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. With the gospel front and center in our lives, we are able to then live in the ways Peter describes here. Submitting ourselves under the authority of others, not because they are so wonderfully righteous themselves, but because God has seen fit to put them in our lives. We are called to conduct ourselves in a way that is not self-seeking or tries to get our shots in when we can, but instead it points the unbeliever directly, directly to God. We do this by humbling ourselves as Christ did. As it says in chapter 2, he did not revile in return. And we don't threaten after we are afflicted. This is not likely to win us fame and fortune in the world that we live in. But we are called to something higher than this world, are we not? What I find to be pretty amazing is the way that this entire mindset would be very countercultural at the time of the writing of this letter 
and it's still countercultural today. Having as your baseline default a lifestyle that is supposed to be identified by a willingness to serve others, to endure suffering even for doing nothing wrong, would be and still is something not shared by unbelievers. In our first year of New Testament studies at Mid-America, we were tasked with reading an ancient letter from a Stoic. Stoics were people who didn't believe in any afterlife, but they saw all of life as suffering that would eventually culminate in having death release your soul from the prison of the body, but then your soul just goes up into abstract nothingness. In that letter, we learned of the Stoic view of suffering. You take it on the chin and you just get over it. You don't get mad, you don't get glad, you just get over it and you move on. If you were emotional when things got tough, the Stoics thought you were just acting like a baby. No emotions was good emotions. Our culture today would have us act in the extreme opposite, would it not? someone says something that offends you, you should sue them. If you don't like someone, you slander them every opportunity that you get to everyone that you meet. And if someone doesn't agree with your ideology, then you cancel them. Our culture is then quite the opposite of what the Roman world was. Instead of holding a stoic resolve that shows no weakness, we're encouraged to complain to seize every circumstance to play the victim. I ask you, though, is either of those what Peter calls for from Christians? Does he say, just tough it out and get over it? Or does he say, complain to upper management until you get the exact working conditions that you think that you deserve? No. Peter says that the believers are supposed to show humility in the face of hardships and still show honor to all those they have relationships with. This is the Christian mindset that all of us are supposed to exhibit, and it has to be backed up by a heart that cares. Our second point today takes the second and the fourth descriptors of the verse and builds off of the first and the fifth. Looking at the first two characteristics again, Peter was focused on the mind. But here in the next two characteristics, Peter moves on to the heart. As those who are called to be humble, focused on pursuing righteousness of Christ, we are enabled by the Holy Spirit to see those around us as people made in the image of God, worthy of sympathy and compassion. Unlike the Roman world, again, that was all about getting ahead using every advantage to get you up and everybody else down, Peter encourages his readers to instead show sympathy and a tender heart for those around us who are struggling. The Greek word that we get sympathy from means to share the same feelings or to have understanding. As Romans 12.15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. As the Christians of Peter's time were elect exiles, living in a brutal Roman world, this type of lifestyle was only halfway practiced by the unbelievers around them. If there was a reason to celebrate, the Romans could hold a party that would last for weeks. But if somebody was struggling, well, you were expected to move on. Keep a stiff upper lip. 
That's not the type of attitude that Peter calls for. Peter is calling for the believers to come alongside one another in struggles and trials to help one another through sympathy and understanding. Christ himself is said to have modeled this for the Christians in his earthly life when he descended and suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Chapter 2, verse 21. Not only are we called to follow in Christ's steps of suffering, but also to follow in his action of lowering himself and coming alongside human frailty, which he did when he took on the form of a servant. Philippians 2. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan, the one who acted as a neighbor and showed love to the dying man was the one who took an active part in that man's suffering, the suffering of his enemy. He was the one who inconvenienced himself by way of time, comfort, and money, all in order to care for another person. This type of sympathetic action of bringing ourselves into someone else's suffering and walking alongside of them, caring for them, and being patient with them, is something that would be repulsive. It would be an absolutely disgusting weakness in the Roman world. But this is exactly what the Christians are called to do. This is fulfillment of the second greatest commandment, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Philippians 2, 2-5 is another example, as Paul calls for the Philippians to put others' needs ahead of their own. Lowering themselves in order to lift up others. Or 1 Corinthians 12, 24-26, where he calls for unity among the body of believers to prevent division and for honor to be given to those members who are in more need of help and honor. As a body of believers, if we do not give proper care to those parts that are in need of it, We open the door for division, for hurt, and for anger. Thinking again of the human body. If one of the members is hurt, the rest of the body must cease from its normal activities in order to help that member. If there's a cut that is left unclean and untreated, infection can set in and ultimately death. So also with the body of believers. We cannot ignore and just seek to brush over someone else's problems because they're not our problems. We are called to be sympathetic, to seek to help that member, coming alongside of them in love, helping them to be restored to a place of health and activity in the church. This again circles back to our attitudes of being humble, not holding ourselves above our brothers and sisters, but getting down in the nitty-gritty of life with them and exposing ourselves to the filth of sin. Again, if one part of the body is left, hurt or injured, the whole body will not be able to function properly and at its highest level. We must recognize our need for the help and care of others, both to give it and to receive it, if we are going to have a body that is able to work well in the best way possible to glorify God. Sympathy, then, is the outward action of the heart. Coming alongside a brother or sister who is suffering and encouraging them through a heart of love. This sympathetic action is fueled by a compassionate, 
or a tender heart, as the verse says. This idea of compassion or being tender-hearted is the fourth quality that Peter calls for from the believers. And you might think to yourselves, well, those are kind of the same thing, aren't they? Sympathy and compassion, they are very close. But there is a nuance that we have to see here. Where we saw sympathy as the action of coming alongside of someone, sharing their struggles. Being tender-hearted is the status of your heart that brings you to a place where you can actually do that action. What I'm saying is that the action of sympathy and coming alongside of a struggling brother and sister is only possible if your heart is already tender or compassionate towards them in the first place. Tender-heartedness or compassion is an attribute that is again called for from believers and is not common in the world. It is not enough that we help one another and come alongside each other, for that can be done coldly or out of a sense of obligation. We can see one of our brothers or sisters struggling and tell ourselves, well, I guess I better help them. I mean, it's the right thing to do. This cannot be the attitude of a believer. We who have been given undeserved mercy on a scale that is truly hard to comprehend cannot be cold and indifferent. Our hearts of stone have been broken down, and they are now home to the Holy Spirit. And that Spirit is working within us and has given us a heart of flesh, a tender heart that should be overflowing with the love of Christ for others. As in Philippians, we're called to imitate our Savior who lowered himself and put the needs of his people before his own, So here in this passage, we're called to follow Christ in his compassion for those who are hurt, who are lost, who are in need of a Savior. Scripture says that Christ was moved with that same word, compassion. And out of that compassion, he healed the sick and he fed the hungry. This compassion, which moves us to sympathy towards others, and the unity and humility that brings us together as a body of believers all culminate In Peter's pinnacle of the chiasm, our final point, brotherly love. As the children's song goes, we love because God first loved us. Maybe you learned that in Sunday school this year, because my kids did. In that simple truth, we see the true root of these characteristics that Peter wants the believers to pursue. None of these other attributes of Christian life can be accomplished unless we have first, at our core, a love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ himself, in his high priestly prayer, asked the Father to give unity and love to his followers so that the world would know that they are loved by God. Jesus asked for the love of God that is manifest between the Father and the Son. That love, a perfect love, That it would fill the believers so that they would not only be filled with it for their unity and their preservation, but so that the world would also see it and be witness to the power and the love of God that is showered on his children. Think about the power of that statement for elect exiles. These people, who as the parable said, have found the pearl of greatest value in the truth of the gospel. They, who are now living in the hope of the resurrection of Christ, 
have quite likely lost their jobs, their status, probably family members, but they have an inheritance waiting for them in heaven that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. They who are facing the looming threat of persecution are being guarded by the power of God for a salvation to be revealed later. All of these wonderful promises and the love of God as their Father, through the working of Christ Jesus, their brother. Brotherly love is a family love which has been given to them in Christ. And this love was given to them is our love. This unified, humble, sympathetic, and compassionate love is ours. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in perfect unity, have accomplished our justification. They are in the process of completing our sanctification, and it will eventually result in our glorification. Christ humbled himself, came alongside our sinful human frailty, and became our perfect high priest who it says is able to sympathize with our every weakness in Hebrews 4. Filled with compassion for his lost sheep, he has sought out and will collect all of his lost sheep from every corner of this world until he holds them all in his hands, and then he will lose none of them. Because of the glories of this great love with which he has loved us, we are now able to go into a watching world and show forth just a very small, imperfect glimmer of that same love. We who have nothing to lose, because our lives are secure in Christ, are now able to be vulnerable to the ridicule of the world, showing forth an unbreakable unity, humility in the face of persecution, sympathy and compassion to even our enemies, all because we have love. Because we have love for each other, and we have the love of Christ working in us through the Holy Spirit. Amen. Shall we pray? Our gracious God and our Father in heaven, may we live out of this glorious truth every day. May our family of believers shine bright as an example of unity, of humility, of sympathy, stemming from compassion, because we have been loved by Christ. Grant us this, we pray, in Jesus' name.